word of God reads in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Read it one more time because I need this to sink into us. For I have chosen him. I'm sorry. Is there something I need to do? Okay. For I have chosen him. I guess speak lower is what I need to do. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham As you get seated, I just want to tell you today that I'm going to speak to you from the subject, dad joke. Dad joke. Look at your neighbor and tell them, dad joke. Dad joke. Anybody ever experienced a dad joke? I'd like to begin with a few questions. What do you call an angry carrot? A steamed vegetable. Ha, ha, ha. There's more coming. Where's Josh? You see him? <laughs> He's like the king of dad jokes. What would bears be without bees? Ears. Get it? Bears? Bees? <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. There's more. Why did the bicycle fall over? Because it was too tired. Get it? Too tired? Okay, I'm not done yet. All right, let me, let me get a little more spiritual. What do sprinters eat before a race? Nothing. They fast. <laughs> okay, here's a Bible one. What was next to King David's temple? His ear. Get it? Temple. All right, all right. Last one, I promise. Maybe second to last. We'll see how it goes. What do a philosophy professor, a four-year-old, and the Backstreet Boys all have in common? They're all asking the same question. Sing it. Say it. I heard it. Yes? I'm not going to sing it. You heard them? Tell me why. All right. So the jokes that I just presented in this little comedy routine are what are known as dad jokes. You may be saying to yourselves right now, do dads always tell jokes? Well, in response to this, I say, I didn't even know do dads existed, let alone told jokes. Let that sink in. Do dads. Okay, anyways. <laughs> that was an example of a very bad dad joke. A dad joke is usually clever, unsubtle joke in which the punchline often involves a pun or a form of wordplay. While usually we call them corny, dad jokes differ from other corny jokes in that the humor is found in the lack thereof. In other words, we know they're corny, 
And it's funny because we know they're corny and you know they're corny and you know that I know that you know. And so we laugh about it. Or we roll our eyes or we groan, right? There are hundreds of internet pages and social media accounts dedicated to recording dad jokes. While researching for this message, I read articles, academic articles dedicated to the study of dad jokes. And I learned that the term dad joke was first introduced in an article in the Gettysburg Times in 1987. But the idea of the dad joke, basically a corny joke told by a patriarchal figure, has been around for as long as human fathers interacted relationally with their children. There's even an ancient Japanese term. Oh yeah, I'm going to try this. Oyaji Gyagu that translates as funny old man sayings that are met with blank stares from young people. Some of the psychology works I read tell us that dads begin to embrace being dad jokers when their kids are young. There's something about the laughter of your four-year-old who, you know, let's face it, they'll laugh at anything. Uh, But there's something about that that can have a profound impact on the psyche of a father. And while when their kids reach teenage years, these corny jokes often help the kids get a peek around the curtain of the disciplinarian dad to keep them down to earth in their perspective. You know, if you ever are the parent of a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you got to hammer down on the kids. But every now and then the dad joke lets them know that you're still dad. There are a few articles encouraging dads to let go of dad jokes as they are only relics of a time when someone with the perspective of a four-year-old actually found you funny and said to hold on to them so tight is kind of like mental illness. That dad jokes should be not a thing after a certain period of time. To those people, I say search hashtag dad joke on Twitter and tell me if its popularity has gone away. Well, from 2014 until now, the dad joke has grown into one of the most popular forms of comedy. What I want to talk to you about today is how popular it has become in the modern family, in the modern culture, that the idea of what the father means to the home and family has become a joke. And nobody's noticed that the punchline to this joke has become the degradation of our society. From Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation chapter 20, the Bible is filled with the history of sin. Death and destruction and all that is wrought and will essentially bring to finality upon our world and our families reigned throughout all of these scriptures. But we see something very peculiar in the only four chapters of the entire Bible not to contain sin. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelations 21 and 22 are interesting in that there is a key theme present. The beginning of Genesis tells us of the creation of the universe. But in chapter 2, the narrative expands upon the creation of humanity and our place in the rest of creation. Chapter 1 tells us that God created... He looked at everything he made and he declared, this is good. 
But in chapter 2, verse 18, for the first time in history, God looks at something he made and says, it is not good. What he was referencing that was not good was the state in which the human he created actually lived. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 7, it says that God formed Adam, or Ha'adam, meaning man, out of the ground, or Ha'adama. And if you notice, the root word Adam is in both man and ground, which kind of brings on a whole new understanding when you think about when God cursed Adam for sinning, right? He said, curse is the ground for your sake. I don't want to go too far into that. That's not what I'm preaching, though. (laughs) So back to Genesis. In chapter 1 and verse 27, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so he made Adam like himself. God is self-sufficient. John 1.3 says he created all things, and without him there would be nothing. All things were created through him, and nothing was created outside of him or apart from him. He did not need materials to create. He did not need raw materials. He didn't take dirt from something that already existed and form the earth out of that. He spoke, and dirt became. God has no beginning, and he has no end. He exists outside of time. And he cannot be conformed to or explained within the bounds of human logic or understanding based on our concept of physical laws and principles. So we try to, in our own brains, fathom how it is that something could exist and not have a beginning or an end. Well, God exists outside of our ability to fathom. So we need to let that go. In all of that, the Bible tells us that in some ways, Adam was not that different from him when he was created. What do we know about God in some ways from the Bible? It tells us that he's a relational being, an emotional being. It says that he is love. It says that he desires companionship with you. And so he created something in his image, so that he can have companionship with. Even today with this Holy Spirit living inside of us, we cannot understand the depth of the connection that existed between Adam and God. But we will. The day is coming when we will understand that connection that was lost between us that we have been searching for this whole time. I don't want to take an aside, but that hole inside of us that we've been filling with drugs, with alcohol, with sex, with work, with gaming, with anything that takes the place of God in our lives, those ho- that hole that we're trying to fill will never get filled with anything but God. So we need to stop trying to fill it with anything but God. And if you're just hearing this for the first time today and you've been wasting your life away trying to fill empty places inside of yourself by chasing things in this world and thinking that those things are going to make you happy, I tell you that the end thereof is death. Fill those holes with God, and you will see them filled forever. Back to this. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God looks at Adam, and he sees himself. 
And God knows that he is a relational being who desires companionship. And so when he looks at Adam, he says, it is not good that he should be alone. And now for a second, I need you to realize something. We're told in verse 22 that Eve was pulled out of Adam. She's pulled out of Adam. In other words, all that Eve is already existed inside of Adam before she was pulled out of him. What am I saying? When Adam was created, it is possible that he, being one in himself, could fulfill the purpose for which God created him. But as soon as Eve was created, it is impossible for him to fulfill his purpose apart from her. That's why in chapter 2, verse 23, Adam says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. And in verse 24, it goes on to say, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There is a oneness that is necessary to fulfill God's purpose. There is a oneness that is necessary to fulfill God's purpose. And so what is that purpose for which they were made? Well, going back to chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, Let us create man in our image according to our likeness. We heard that, right? He says, Let us create man in our image according to our likeness to rule. Our purpose then is to be God's companion and rule his creation. Brothers and sisters, for every one of you sitting in here thinking to yourselves that you don't matter, listening to you tell yourself that, that you're not important, uh, I, I want you to understand that God has kingdom purpose for you. Your purpose is to have dominion, not to be ordinary and mediocre and not to be bound to the things that are holding you back from experiencing all that God has for you. I don't care what things may look like. God has more for you, and today you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So how has God set humanity up to rule? In verse 28, he gives the first commandment in history. He tells them, and because remember, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, he's talking to male and female. He says, uh, let us create man after our own image. And God created man, you know, in his own image, male and female. He created them. So he's talking to both man and woman at this time. And he says this. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So that's the plan. The path to your dominion, the path to kingship purpose in your life, the foundation of that kingship is family. The foundation is family. The foundation is family. Can somebody repeat after me? The foundation is family. The foundation is family. I need you to understand this because it's going to impact your outlook going forward from here, the foundation to God's purpose in your life is family. Isn't it interesting that the Bible opens and closes with a marriage? 
In Genesis chapter 2, the first Adam marries Eve. In Revelation chapter 21, when the angel shows the apostle John the end, when heaven and earth meet, when the new Jerusalem descends upon this world and the presence of God lives with us forever and all the people gather to be in eternity with him. He doesn't say, let me show you the end. Let me show you heaven and earth coming together. Let me show you all the people living in the presence of God. He says, behold, let me show you the bride of the Lamb. The path to connection with God is a oneness that can only be achieved by one man and one woman building family. You think your family's crazy? Everybody nowadays can probably say their family's crazy. There are probably many of you that don't even have family or know what it means to be in a loving, caring family. All of this is Satan's plan. Mark chapter 3, verse 25, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You can't be a happy family. You can't be a family that communicates. In his world, you can't be a family that prays for one another when you're going through hard times. You can't be a family that just comes together for no reason but to be with each other. No, you got to hold things close. you got to have boundaries. you got to do your own thing. How's this crazy family going to help you anyway? Brothers and sisters, it's not what they're going to do. It's what they are. Family is the foundation to your royalty. But if the foundation is divided, the purpose cannot stand. If the foundation is divided, the purpose cannot stand, regardless of what resources they have now or lack now. God can't build on a house with no foundation. And it's not going to get better as long as the foundation has cracks. And if the foundation is broken, there's no platform from which God can launch you into his purpose. I'm getting ahead of things a little bit here. All right, so (laughs) what I'm about to talk about is the last thing that most of the women in here want to hear. If you've been in church long enough, you know what I'm going to say. But there's a reason why you don't want to hear it, which we're going to get to, okay? Yes, I am. All right, so first things first. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40, God says everything must be done decently and in order. Amen? Okay. You receive that? Some of you are on the fence. God has an order to how he does things, okay? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, here we go. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. (laughs) People get very worked up over this verse. I don't submit to no man, right? Ah, the patriarchy just wants to hold us down. I want you to realize something. The section doesn't begin with wives submit to your husbands. It begins with submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul goes on to show us and explain what that looks like. So it's not unilateral submission of the wife to the husband and the husband is the king who sits on the throne and he has a servant wife 
who he had, yeah. woman, bring me drink, woman, bring me food, woman, raise my kids while he just sits on his throne. There is a mutual submission that is taking place here. And if you fail to understand the context of what the word of God is saying, you're going to go back to yourself and say, this Paul guy is very misogynistic. He, he needs some forward thinking in his life. I'm going to go ahead and reject this section of scripture because it doesn't apply to 2023 and the modern society that we have today. See, women are independent and don't need no man to take care of them, right? I, I'm with it. I'm not against it, you know? Be empowered, ladies. But understand that in the order of things, of how God wants it to be, a woman submits to her husband as to the Lord. I'm going to get to the men. Relax. You know, he also says employees work for your bosses as if you're working for the Lord, right? Many of you have no problem doing that. Ladies, right? I forget what they call the term now. It was, I don't even want to say it out loud. I guess I can't say that in church. But you work to be your own boss, right? To be a boss. I'm a boss. Right? That's the thing. Or it was anyways. And so the principle is not wives just submit to your husbands. It's everyone do everything as if you're doing it for God. But Satan wants us turning it into a battle of the sexes because a divided house cannot stand. And we forget that the husband also has a role to play. Verse 25 says, husbands. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. It doesn't end there. That's very sweet, right? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's nothing pretty about how Christ gave himself up for the church. God in his glory took it off and came down naked as a human being into this filthy world. He was born in a stable amongst animals. Anybody ever been to a stable? The stink of it. The God of creation and glory living in the heavens with the most beautiful fragrances that we can't even imagine has to come and be born into this stinky, filthy stable and live his life in ancient Israel. Do you know what things were like in ancient Israel? There was no central AC. They didn't have carpeting. They didn't have 10-inch memory foam mattresses. Okay? And that's not even talking about the crucifixion. And God is calling on men to love their wives like Christ loved the church. In other words, how deep into the mud are you willing to crawl for your wives? And if you have a limitation that that means you don't love your wife like Christ loved the church because there's no mud deep enough that Christ wouldn't drag himself through for the church. Reevaluate your pride, men. You see, she submits to him. He sacrifices for her. And in that mutual responsibility, there is a oneness that brings connection to the divine power and blessing over your purpose. You look at a power couple like Bishop and Mrs. Jenkins, for those of you who know who they are. You think they don't have their house in order to get to where they are today? But no, you don't want to look at their example. You want to follow Tina and Jimbo's example over here because Tina makes her own decisions and Jimbo doesn't rule her. And Jimbo doesn't need to answer to Tina when he goes out with the boys or stays in the living room playing PlayStation all day. 
And Tina works three jobs, and Jimbo works overnight and sleeps all day, and when he's not gaming. And so now their kids call Grandma Mom, and they call her Tina. And they have a house, and they have a car, but they have no relationship. And they have no power, and they have no purpose because they have no foundation, because their house is built on sand. Maybe if you stop questioning God's order and started following his directions, you will understand. Like Brother Will and Sister Maria, I don't know if they're here today, but if you look at their example, these two people don't make a move without talking to each other first and praying about it together to the Lord. And Maria knows she's not Will's servant, and Will knows he's not her slave master, but she has seen God's hand over her home and over her children because she, what's that dirty word, submitted to her husband. And because he submits to God, because family is purpose enough, and we seek first the kingdom of heaven for our homes, and God then will add the crown in his good time. Satan has always tried to destroy God's purpose in us in this way. From the beginning, he starts his attack on the order of our roles in the family. It's so subtle, most people don't even realize it. He didn't go to Eve because she was dumber than Adam or because she was newer and naive or because she was more curious or had a lesser relationship with God. His first attack was on the foundation before he ever attempted to seduce her to sin. He went to her because she was her, the wife, because he wanted to disrupt the order of how things worked in the family. He immediately won the battle when he called on her to make a decision, and Adam was not consulted, nor did he intervene. You may be saying to yourself, well, maybe Adam wasn't there. Maybe he was off naming a lion. Or a wolf. Well, the Bible says that Eve ate from the fruit that she was commanded not to eat from and turned and gave to Adam, and then he ate from the fruit. In other words, he was right there watching the whole time. And how do we know that Adam had this authority that required within their oneness for her to advise him anyway? Well, when God placed Adam in the garden alone, he gave Adam authority over all created animals. Not saying that that's why Eve, he had authority over Eve. She's not a created animal. But in that authority, the Bible tells us that God brought the animals to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, and he named them as a sign of his authority. And what he called them, that is what they were. And then in verse 22, if you read down, it says that God also brought the woman to Adam. And it says that Adam then named the woman. And so that is the exercise of his authority in the relationship. He named her, and because he named her, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that is what she was. But now here comes Satan. And he comes in the serpent that Adam named and challenges his authority uninterrupted. And when they fell in sin, guess who God held accountable first? 
He didn't first speak to the serpent and say, why did you seduce my humans? And he didn't speak to Eve and say, why did you eat the fruit and not consult your husband? He went to Adam and said, Adam, what is this that you have done? Allowing the disruption of the foundation of my purpose over you. Allowing it to be destroyed and, and upsetting the order of how things were created to be. And so what we see is even though Satan disrupted God's order, right away God puts the order back together. And going first to man and then to woman, then to the created serpent. And so though we lost connection to God, immediately he begins to implement his redemption first by reestablishing his order. And because of this, from then till now, godly order of familial roles has been under attack by Satan ever since. He started with women. They became commodities, right? Throughout history. You know, people, even God's people, the Jews, had multiple wives. Wives were just, you know, the vehicle for childbearing. There was nothing about relationship or love. In direct opposition to Genesis chapter 2.24 where Adam and Eve become one in marriage. And it wasn't until the Jews returned from exile in Babylon that they began to reject polygamous culture. For many centuries, wives existed to birth sons and daughters existed to become wives. Christianity is the only continuous culture for thousands of years that encourages monogamy and empowers women. Though there are many and were many Christian cultures that devalue women, even today. But Jesus and the early church did not devalue women. Now I know Paul is famous for his women need to cover their heads and learn in silent speeches. But only the uneducated would weaponize that as an anti-feminine misogynistic representation of Christianity. And unfortunately, there are a lot of uneducated men and women in Christianity today and in the world. In first century Corinth, there are a few cultural issues to understand. At that time, we had Jewish Christians attempting to balance the rejecting of the extreme legalism common to Judaism at that time. In other words, they they were all under this kind of misogynistic practices and things like that that did uh, institutionally devalue women, but when Christianity started, they were throwing off that legalism and trying to balance that with modern culture of that time. But at the same time, they weren't trying to go too far in embracing modern Roman culture because it was based on pagan ideology and idolatry. And sometimes they didn't get it right. But we have to understand, in Corinth, many of the early church leaders were actually wealthy women. And they held the services in their homes. And for some, this actually gave these women access to strengthen their social power, undermining the purpose of their gathering. And so instead of worship, they were turning the gatherings into what was known as convivias, or parties known for immoral activity in the Roman culture of that time. And so part of it was that Paul wanted to refocus them on the purpose of these gatherings, 
by reinstituting the women's show of respect to the authority of their husbands in the home, right? And bringing them back to the authority in their role in an outward way by doing what women traditionally did when other men entered their home. They covered their hair. It was a tradition. It established that this woman respected the authority of the man in her home and that when other men entered her home, they didn't get a glimpse of what was meant for him. On top of that, Romans, in their attempts to undermine Jewish society and demoralize them, ordered that Jewish women, married or not, walk around the street without head coverings because they wanted to demoralize them and they knew that that was a practice of their traditions and that it meant so much to them. And they also knew full well that in both Jewish and Roman culture, an adult female with an uncovered head at the time was a signal of promiscuity and in many cases prostitution. In fact, Roman law stated that a married woman who was engaged by a man in the street was the one at fault for whatever took place if her head was uncovered. And so Paul, far from being a misogynist, was actually protecting and empowering Jewish women and their, and their uh, rep uh, reputations at this time. But no, Paul was a misogynist, right? He was anti-women. The Bible is anti-women. Christianity is anti-women. No. Absolutely not. Jesus is about setting people free. Male, female. God is about human beings having dominion. Male and female. Well, centuries later, when degrading the place of women in the family didn't work to destroy God's purpose... Satan repackaged some of his earlier tricks. And then, you know, mid-20th century, we get the sexual revolution, right? If anybody knows anything about the 60s, I don't know if there's anybody old enough in here to know what that's about. But what happens at this time, women, they, they get empowered because they're encouraged to engage in sexual relationships without the expectations of marriage and childbearing, right? The same for men. And... The principles of that movement, they persist in most liberal societies today. But Satan, he began to layer his attacks on the family. For instance, a woman may not want to get married and have kids, but they can't avoid the biological consequences of sex, which is pregnancy. So Satan introduces abortion, right? That solves the problem. Kill the kids before they can become fatherless. Solves a problem for social situations, right? And now culturally, if you're against abortion, somehow you're against women. And what was the big crisis in minority communities when I was growing up? Absentee fathers. Facts show that children who grew up in a fatherless home dominates the list of at-risk issues and behaviors, such as suicide, runaways, behavioral disorders, dropping out of school, juvenile detention, substance abuse, aggression, imprisonment, and on and on and on. And many programs such as after-school activities and community centers for kids over these years were designed to fill the gaps in communities where there were so many fatherless homes. And so you see how Satan works? It's subtle, right? Be empowered. 
Take back your sexuality from the patriarchy. Oh, but then you have children and they're fatherless now because there's no um, importance given to the family, to traditional family structure. And if the kids are allowed to be born, they're just going to destroy society around them because there's no male figure to set the way in your home. But if you don't want that to happen, you could always kill them before they're born. Sounds different when you put it that way, right? Then you have organizations like Black Lives Matter, whose leaders have accepted that fatherless homes and minority communities is so culturally normal that they reject the idea against all statistical facts that a father is even needed in the home. As published in their belief statement, it says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think it's a beautiful thing that communities want to support each other in their difficult times. But of course, instead of promoting monogamous marriage-based relationships and traditional family structures, this is their answer. And if that doesn't work, there's always abortion, right? I'm going to let you in on something that the devil knows and that God knows and that the U.S. government knows and that the American Association of Pediatrics knows and that the American Sociological Review knows and that the Kettering Foundation knows and that the Journal Research on Adolescence knows and that all these other scientific communities that research children and society know. A father is irreplaceable. A father is irreplaceable. I'm not talking about a stepfather. I'm talking about the existence of a male father figure is irreplaceable. An entire village of women can't replace the influence of one male father figure in a child's life. The role of a father is so important that when God decided to implement his plan of a of redemption. He didn't start by choosing someone to become a king. He didn't start by choosing someone to become a military leader. He started by choosing someone to become a father. And so Abraham was called. You can clap to that. A father figure in someone's life is irreplaceable. And if a village of women can't do it, I'll get to that. (laughs) Two moms can't do it. Uh, All right. Couldn't couldn't not say it. All right. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, he says, For I have chosen him, who did the choosing God, who is him, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. The whole purpose of Abraham being chosen and even having a family was so that he can teach his children the way of the Lord. And by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What did he promise him? I promise to make you a great nation. I promise to separate you in the earth. And through the nation that is going to come forth from you, the rest of the earth will be blessed. 
His plan of redemption came through his choosing of a man not to be a bachelor, but to be a father. But it is harder than it sounds. I mean, we know that the, the act of becoming a father is not as hard as it sounds. But, you know, I think the mother has it harder in that respect. But the act of being a father is harder than it sounds. Now, a man does not become identified as a kingdom foundational husband and father simply because he was born with certain parts and learned how to use them. If you catch my drift. Every instruction to fathers throughout biblical history, from Abraham to Jesus, all begin with the same principles. In fact, the greatest example of fatherhood to follow would be that of Jesus, which is pretty ironic in that he did not biologically produce children while he was on the earth. But we know that he is the father of all creation. And in being one with the father of the universe, he showed us the best way to do it. Principle number one is and always will be this, that a godly husband and father sets the tone for relationship with God in their family. It's always sad when you go to a church and see it filled with women and children, but no fathers. It's no coincidence. Mom may be doing her best. But studies have shown that 60% of kids who grow up with only mom attending church end up leaving down the line, with only 2% becoming lifelong active members and 37% just attending occasionally and casually. But with just dad, a single dad, that number jumps from 2% to 44%, not even counting with both parents. Satan wants men out of the church. And he definitely wants fathers out of the business of teaching their children and their families how to have a relationship with God. The biggest children's ministries in the world have all said the same thing. Having male teachers was integral to their success. Needless to say, Jesus made it a point to teach everyone about God. Another one of the principles is to be the example of work ethic, right? That's not a surprise. The dad is known as the worker in the home. But it's also, in relation to that, to be the example of work-life balance and rest in the home. Yes, fathers are known to be the workers, but how are they known? But how they are known to be the workers are what matters to God and to families. Is dad taking pride in his work, or does he hate what he does and makes it known to everyone? Does he work as if he's doing it for the Lord and not for man? Or does he just lays on by and, you know, gives minimal effort? Does he use his work to provide for his family, or is his job the center of his fulfillment instead of God and his family? Is he allowing for the proper work-life balance? Or is he dedicating himself so much to work that he has no idea what's going on in his household? 
And is he giving time for rest? Even God rested. And he instituted the Sabbath so that we too can follow his example. Our children will take their cues from us in all of these respects. And that's why Jesus was sure to be the best representative in all of these matters. The Bible says he worked many times into the middle of the night teaching and healing. How's that for work ethic? But it also says that he always made time to eat with and spend time with his disciples, which were his closest family. And it doesn't leave out this, that he always made time to separate himself, to rest and to pray. So whose model are you living after? The model of the CEO who doesn't work weekends until they've been on the job for 14 years because you're chasing that six-figure salary or seven-figure salary or whatever? Or are you going to follow the model of Jesus, the most successful human being to ever walk this earth who still reigns now and forevermore because of the efforts that he put in? Now, Another principle is that husbands and fathers are also called to be the final word on decision-making. Back to the controversy. Husbands, fathers, the only way your wife is going to trust you to be the final word in decision-making is if she knows you love her like Christ loves the church. If she knows that your decision-making will come from a place of self-sacrifice and extreme humility... Again, I ask you this, how many limits do you place on your level of humility when it comes to how deep in the mud you're willing to crawl for your wife? If you have a line that you're not willing to cross in that respect, then you need to reevaluate your understanding of humility. Remember what Jesus did for us and what he was willing to go through and endure the, the humiliation of his crucifixion for us. Most of us don't even know how to apologize to our wives when we do something to upset them. I don't know how to say sorry because you don't know what true humility is. Another principle, a good one, we must manage our homes and our children well. Most Men tend to think this means we need to be the boss in our homes. But this, the, the, the Greek word for manage actually means stewardship. And a steward isn't the boss. A steward is a protector and a maintainer of something that is given to him that is not his for a temporary period of time. Our families belong to God. We are to maintain and protect our wives and our children as long as God allowed them to be in our care. For our wives, it's until death, but there's still eternity, okay? And in most cases, the same for our kids, but they do become stewards of families in their own rights if you did what you were supposed to do in their lives. This is our primary responsibility, not work, and definitely not the church. It's to protect and manage our wives and our children so that they can grow up, so that they can be blessed, so that they can live lives in God's purpose. And wives, allow your husbands to do that. 
Don't allow culture and society to dictate to you that your home should be disrupted and out of order because it doesn't match the agenda of what's going on in the media today. Let your agenda match the purpose that God has over your homes. Here's another big one. Honor our parents. Honor your parents. What does that even mean, right? Honor your mother and your father. In most recent studies done on which countries in the world people live the happiest lives or the best places to raise kids, the U.S. usually ranks pretty low, at least in the 20s and the number of countries. The one thing that makes all those other countries better, these studies have shown, is that their culture surrounding family is very different from ours. In our culture, if we give any importance to family, it's the nuclear family, right? Mom, dad, children. Everything else kind of what we call extended family, right? Extended family can stay extended. Uncle Jim, keep him over there. You cray cray. Extended family is actually important to people in those countries, and they often live in tight circles and are heavily involved in each other's lives. And this, brothers and sisters, is shown in facts over years and years to be the secret to their happiness. But here in America, I know, um, you know, people who don't even communicate with their parents, let alone their extended families. But in these countries, when elderly members of those families can no longer work, there's no fear of homelessness or abandonment. But here I've known homeless moms who had adult sons living somewhere with jobs and families and homes, but because they didn't like the way they were raised or didn't like the problems their parents had or didn't like the way they were spoken to, they decided that the fifth commandment did not apply to them. And as a result of the way we structure family here, people can actually sit here in church and say, you don't know my parent. They're toxic. If she was your mom, you wouldn't communicate with her either. You know, I covered last week how Jesus deals with toxic people. And let me tell you, when you meet Jesus, he's not going to be pleased with you if you spent your whole adulthood punishing your parent for what they did to you as a child. Not when he gave us freedom and healing. He has expectations. He has expectations throughout history and honoring your father and your mother so that you may live a long, prosperous life is one of his expectations. And the reason why we have these relationships with our parents and our extended families this way is all part of Satan's plan. And it only takes us one person to decide enough is enough and I'm going to be the glue that puts this family back together. And it may not be easy. And in some cases, it may not be possible now, but if you present a certain example to your children, they're going to carry that into their efforts, and their children are going to carry that into their efforts, and there's going to be a shift in the culture of your family that's going to reinstitute the purpose that God had over your lives. But we are such short-term thinkers that we can't even fathom calling that brood of a mother of ours or that crazy father of ours and all the things that that dad did to me and he beat me and he, you know. I think of the example of um, a preacher named Joyce Meyer whose father molested her when she was a kid. And when she got older and she found the Lord, she established a relationship with him 
and he came to Jesus, and they lived amazing lives as adults. And her kids got to see her connect with her father and understand what this principle truly meant. I'm not going to tell you guys what to do and how to handle the hurt that people did over you. I'm telling you that the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. Like I said last week when I was talking about beating your kids, I'm not going to tell you how to raise your kids. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says about it. For those of you who didn't see it yet, the Bible doesn't teach us to beat our kids. So the point of all of this is this. Family is the foundation. Okay, I've been saying it. And Satan has thus far been unable to destroy family. And so what he wants to do is he wants to distort the idea of what family is. And now we have people who group together and involve children, but they're not family. If mom is dad and dad is mom, or mom one is mom and mom two is dad, or dad one is mom and dad two is dad, you might have the illusion of family, but you have denied its power. And so through sound logic and progressive ideology and good intentions, the Christian family has fallen out of compliance with the will of God. And then there's Satan's most subtle attack to date. We have a father and a mother who have kids together, but the idea that dad is there, the idea that dad is head, the idea that dad is leading the way, protecting the family, is a joke. The order in the home is disrupted. Do you know how that happens? It happens when a husband when a father fails to live up to the principles set forth by God. These things cannot be ignored. A family must be led. A family must be protected. A family must be provided for. And if dad won't do it, mom will. And if mom has to because dad won't, then dysfunction sets in. Because as a man, you can't be trusted to take your place, so you lose it. And in doing that, Satan has set up shop in your home. You ever have a guy you know, anything you ask him, hey, let's go do this, let's hang out, let's get together here and there, whatever. And everything you hear from him is, let me ask my wife. I I got to check in. With the boss. It's not that he's whipped. It's not that she's always worn the pants in the family. It's that he messed up. He failed to hold to the principles of fatherhood and husbandship. And so if, she, if he's lucky enough for her to keep him around, for however long it takes for him to regain that trust, his house is out of order. And it's nobody's fault but his because he lost that order in his home in the first place. He relinquished his headship. And many men don't have the capacity for the level of humility that it takes to gain that back. And so then families are destroyed. Divorces happen. And because of this, Satan is winning our families. But it's time to take back our homes. 
time to take back our homes. Stand to your feet with me. I'm going to close now. The goodness of God is this. The moment you begin to repair the foundation, God restores your purpose. The moment you determine to live up to the title husband and the title father and you stop taking it as a joke, that moment God will work in your family to bless it. So today, if you're here, your family's broken and in disarray, I want to tell you that God's purpose for you and your family is not dead. doesn't matter how far gone things are. We serve a God who has power to resurrect things from death to life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He that believeth in me, though his marriage appears to be on the verge of death, yet shall it live. He that believeth in me, though his kids appear to be on the path of death, yet shall they live. I'm a witness that you can bring your family to the point of death and God can still bring resurrection power to bear. I've lived this myself. I have relinquished my headship over my family at times. And yes, it takes some crawling in mud to gain trust back, to gain headship back. But God can do it. God can can do it. God can do it. If you're sitting in here and you're wondering if your husband will ever take back the responsibility in your home, God can do it. If your father is ever going to be the man that God wants him to be, God can do it. There's nothing dead that he can't make alive follow his word and trust in him. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your mercy, your goodness, and your grace, God. Lord, we come to an expectation of what it is that we receive when your word goes forth. But we pray, Lord God, that whatever it is that we expect, Lord God, we can lay to the side and just receive the purity of what your word is and what it wants to do in our lives. Here we stand, Lord God, having heard you talk about family, and the attack on family and the, 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 the way things are going in these times. But we pray, Lord God, that as long as we submit and surrender to you, whoever we are, Lord God, that you have your way in the purpose of our family. That you strengthen the foundation, Lord God, of our connection, Lord, to each other and to you, Lord God. That you bless our fathers and our husbands, Lord God, with determination, Lord, to be self-sacrificial in such a way, Lord God, that the, the, the temptations to, 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 to be selfish and to, to, to do things that are, are, are self-satisfying and, and, and not uh, putting wife and children first and you first, Lord God, Lord Jesus, would, would, would have no uh, power over our husbands and our fathers. We pray, Lord God, that they're able to see those pitfalls as the traps they are and to reject them, Lord God, and to embrace their headship over the family and lead by example in their their pursuit of you, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, for our women, Lord Jesus, to be who they're supposed to be in our families, Lord God, to support men, to be as you said when you created Adam and Eve, that she would be a helper suitable to him. 
that you didn't pull her out of his feet or out of his head, Lord, as they used to say in my old church, to show that she's not over him or not under him, but that you pulled her out of his side, Lord God, to show that she is equal to him in every way and that the the submission is mutual, Lord God. Let husbands and wives embrace the truth of that today, that submission is mutual, Lord God, and and, and that, that they would please you, Lord Jesus that you would bless their homes, that you would provide kingship to them, that you would crown them in all your glory, Lord God, because they have stuck together and they have worked it through, Lord God, and they have raised their children and managed their home well, Lord God. And for those who have no idea where to go or where to start, Lord Jesus, show them that all it takes is one step in the right direction. One awkward move of faith that may feel ridiculous, but as soon as he turns around and says sorry to her, things can change. As soon as as she turns around and says sorry to him, things can change. As soon as they turn around and say sorry to the kids, things can change. As soon as the kids turn around and say sorry to the parents, things can change. Lord God, there is nothing dead that you cannot bring back to life. I pray that your word blesses these people today, that they go forth with that word, Lord God, and they're able, Lord God, to be empowered and to empower through it. I pray that you bring healing to broken families today, Lord Jesus. I pray that you begin to give husbands the strength, Lord God, if they messed up, Lord God, to crawl through that mud and keep crawling and keep crawling and keep crawling, Lord God, until you and the wife lift them up to the place in which they're supposed to be. I pray, Lord God, that you give our families a hunger, a desire, Lord God, to connect to you, to fill that hole with your love. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A blessed church.